Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You have your body, which is your hardware, and then you have the external world, right? And er at an early age, you develop the software operating system to interact between the hardware and the external world. And that operating system is formed in the first seven years. And this is why the Jesuits say, give me the child and to the age of seven, I give you the man, right? And so that early education inputs, did you get bullied? How did you respond? How do you navigate playground dynamics? Uh, how do you deal with parental stress or family trauma or whatever? You kind of form this operating system. Then we become adults and we start running applications on it, career, love life, sports, money, finance. Uh, and the applications start crashing. And we blame the application we never go back to rewrite the operating system. Uh, and so in, an, in kind of an, in a newer world that we live in today, which is infinitely more complex, global, uh, information-based, uh, we actually need to rewrite our basic operating systems. And so uh, our old tools for that uh, worked when you had a lifetime to kind of think about it, but the world is moving too quickly now for somebody to take 10 years to meditate and get to some level of transformation. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. 
Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Salim, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work uh, by way of several different parties. Uh, Philip McKernan, who was also a speaker at Mastermind Talks, and my friend Matt Monroe, uh, who mentioned you and, and, you know, both fans of the show. Philip has, has been a former guest here. And, you know, when I started digging apart the the work that you were doing, I, I just felt very compelled to reach out to you because I figured it'd be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So uh, on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your background, your journey, and how that has led you to uh, all these things? that you're up to in the world and this sort of bizarre view that you have of the world? Uh, sure. Uh, certainly, I like the bizarre aspect. Um, so, uh, uh, born in India, grew up in uh, Mumbai. Uh, um, family, slightly diplomatic, uh, academics mix. Um, uh, both my grandmothers knew Gandhi and Nehru very well, um, uh, and that's kind of a very strange family in that sense. And then at the age, t- age 10, my parents emigrated to Canada, uh, my father decided he hated uh, noise, dirt, pollution, and corruption. And uh, that has, has caused a bit of a problem in India. So we moved to Montreal for a couple of years and then mostly around Toronto. I went to Waterloo, which is the big tech university there. Um, and my degrees in theoretical physics um, and computing. And then I spent uh, 10 years in Europe all through the 90s um, doing large-scale systems architectures for CSC and Accenture and big, big companies like that. And then five years of management consulting. And it's actually a prelude to some of the work I'm doing now because we were going to big companies saying, you're all looking at IT as a cost and you should be looking at it as a strategic investment because the leverage you get is huge. And so I did that for five years um, and then moved to New York in 99 and started uh, doing some tech entrepreneurship because I found that you can't fix big companies. Uh, It's too big, lumbering, slow. And so I decided to try the entrepreneurial route uh, moved to New York, uh, built two or three companies there. The most notable was a company called PubSub, which was kind of like, the, it was the predecessor to Twitter. Uh, we kind of invented the concept of the activity stream. Uh, but we were literally 18 months too early because um, nobody knew what to subscribe to. Uh, social networks hadn't gained popularity. And once social networks came along, your friend list was a natural subscription list that was there by default. And so, uh, but the 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 process was fascinating. The, the got me kind of known a bit. I moved out to the West Coast in 2006 and joined Yahoo to run their incubator called Brookhouse. 
And that's kind of where really things start because I, I spent like a year and a half, two years there uh, while Jory Yang was CEO. And, and uh, we looked at, I had a team of about like 25, some of the best developers in the world. And our job was look at 3,000 ideas across the company at any time we should be building the top five. And so that was a pretty awesome experience. Uh, died when the, when the Microsoft bid happened and um, the, the company had to kind of consolidate a bit. And there was a raft of people that left. And I had set up a relationship between Yahoo and NASA to do some interesting projects together. Um, uh, you know, they have millions of satellite images. We had Flickr users, and we could help tag images and things like that. One day, the NASA people said, hey, we're starting this thing called Singularity University, and we're having a founding conference. We're bringing about 70 thought leaders together. Uh, do you want to come along? So that was about seven years ago. Uh, and I'd never heard of the Singularity. I'd never heard of Ray Kurzweil, never heard of Peter Diamandis, never heard of XPRIZE. Walked in totally blank. Um, asked a few too many questions, and about two weeks later, the board said, uh, "Do you want to run it?" Um, and so I remember getting home that day and asking my saying, "My wife said, how was your day?" And I said, "I think I'm a dean. Uh, I don't know how that happened. Um, my in-laws are permanently confused." And so for seven years, we've been building out Singularity University. Uh, as part of that, uh, the last three years, um, uh, I've been very f interested in what do we do as, as institutions and organizations to adapt to this new world. Because we would have people that would come to an executive program and then they would, they would go back to their home com country, uh, companies and sound like raving lunatics um, and be essentially put out to pasture after that and were essentially almost non-functional. And we started getting this question, okay, I get that uh, the technology is all going crazy. What the hell do I do on Monday when I get back to the office? Uh, and so I started researching that and turned it into a lecture and a more uh, kind of a broader base of thought started to evolve and then wrote this book, Exponential Organizations, as a result of that, which came out a year ago. So that's the quick summary. Awesome. Well, uh, as you can imagine, that raises a ton of questions. You know, one of the things that I'm always very curious about is uh, people's early childhoods and early influences. I, I'm curious, I mean, when you're a kid, uh, do you look back at your life and, and you know, think of any moments that were really significant that ultimately would open up this whole you know, tr career trajectory that you've had that seems to be pretty interesting and diverse? So two things. You know, one is, um, you know, there's this big raft of, uh, you have an Indian origin, right? Yes. Uh, so there's a big raft of questions of why there are so many good Indian CEOs around, right? The head of a lot of big tech companies or Indian Microsoft, with Satya being the obvious one. Uh, and I have a theory about that, um, okay. which is growing up in an extended Indian family or a complicated city like Mumbai or Delhi or something, um, at an age of like two or three, you have to navigate very complicated human relationships. You have to know that if I say hello to that aunt in front of that grandmother, I'm not getting sweets. Because they're, they're <laughs> right? And there's family politics over here, and that cousin hates that person, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, that, and he gives you a data set and a, an experience set of how to read people and navigate complex human political situations. When it comes to actually building a company, it's like, oh, I got this. This is like way easy in a sense. Right? <laughs> I think that's my kind of very controversial theory as to why uh, Indian CEOs tend to do very well. Um, so I grew up in that kind of an environment. Uh, uh, and the other part was I have a family history of people doing really, really wacko stuff. And so the stories pepper down through the generations uh, of my, my dad grew up in Gandhi's lap tugging on his ears and like uh, has some fascinating stories about the 
the, the as an eyewitness to the partition and, and independence and so on. And so you kind of get this data set also of people doing really bizarre things and not kind of uh, losing it as a result. Growing up, growing up in Canada um, and doing my schooling there, I'm now in this profoundly boring environment, right? And very wonderful, great place to raise kids and, and grow up and so on. But fundamentally, nothing really happens. And so uh, I kind of started yearning to get out. And, and so kind of starting to, and a couple of formative instances where I was rejected to getting into Waterloo and then somehow I got in. And then I was supposed to go work at uh, a software company, GM, to do software. as one of my work terms of work placement. So they have a co-op system. And it, I got rejected, but then somehow I ended up getting in. And I found that whenever I kind of pushed the boundaries and did something a bit weird, uh, things just worked. And so that's kind of been the hallmark of my career is that at unexpected times, I'll just do the totally the opposite thing from conventional wisdom. I'm about to become a partner at a consulting company uh, and I just go the hell with this. I'm out of here. And I go 18 months traveling around the world um, uh, and then go do something completely different. And I found that about every five years or so I do something quite radically different to change the game completely. Uh, and so that's been a standard pattern now over like 30 years, I think, for me. Hmm. Okay, so that raises way way more questions. First, I thought it was only my family that was nuts. Uh, <laughs> I guess I guess that is true of all Indian families, yeah. and and basically all families in general. Indian families <laughs> tend to be a little more nuttier than most. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that uh, capacity to navigate complex human relationships, uh, do you think that that is something that can be learned later in adult life? Yeah. How? I and think if so, it how? Can. Uh, so let me give you a uh, an example. So at Singularity, uh, for uh, you know, I'm the founding executive director. Um, uh, ran the first couple of summers, but mostly for 25 one week executive sessions. We have one week courses there. I I moderate those, and for I did this for like six years, right? Moderated all of our programs. So I'm on stage uh, moderating an event with the best speakers in the world, the most impressive audiences that maybe anybody's ever seen. Uh, um, uh, in a room for a week. Uh, and so you have to have your game really on. And what I, what you find over time is you get to read the audiences and you get to read the group. Uh, and I found that on day two or three of one of these one week programs, I could look over and go, okay, that French guy over there is going to be a problem in a couple of days, right? What do I do now to mitigate what he's going to say in a couple of days that will throw off the group and send it in the wrong direction? And I found I was I was really real I got really really good at it and and as a result people would kind of really notice the moderation um, uh, after a while and 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 so over time as time went by the first few were kind of so so but as after about the fifth seventh eighth tenth one um, it's a, it was a became a learned skill how to read and moderate groups and manage group energy in a sense um, and it's definitely something you can learn in life now certainly. Uh, there's some inputs from childhood not being worried about what people think of you and other things. But there, I think there's aspects of this that you can definitely learn as an adult. I think the concept of, you know, the, there's this whole question of brain plasticity and how do you introduce that in, as in, in a, an adult stage. And there's, we have kind of starting to understand techniques for doing that. And I think we'll get better at re, reorganizing, reinventing ourselves uh, as we need to going forward. Hmm. So one other question I have about this is, is coming from Indian descent, uh, you know, I, I've been raised with uh, the sense that a, a very predictable, incredibly certain, straight and narrow linear path is uh, 
what I should pursue. And I'm kind of amazed that that wasn't really part of your upbringing. And I'm just curious, you know, what you'd have to say about all that. No, it was. Uh, my father was a mechanical engineer, and okay. so he was pretty adamant that I was going to go into engineering. Um, uh, my my mother turns out to be the really crazy one. Um, <laughs> uh, and so she got into IT, um, and she would come home and say, hey, listen, I, I've got these two disk drives. One says MB, one says KB. I don't know which one's bigger, because um, um, I don't know how many zeros are in MB versus KB. And I'm like, you're the head of IT at a bank. <laughs> and you can't tell the difference. That's, you know, we have a serious problem here. And so uh, sh- uh, that side of the family is where I've got some of the lunacy from and some rational thinking processes from my, from my father's side. Um, the, the combination, of course, works out well if you can balance the two. The, the, uh, but there was a heavy pressure to go do something and be a standard, normal, career-based environment. Uh, and it became pretty quickly clear that that wasn't going to work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as I was trying to study engineering, I just hated it. And so uh, I did two years of that and dropped uh, dropped out and switched into physics. How do people overcome environments that hold them back that are like that uh, later in their lives? If they have found themselves, you know, really, really far down a linear path. I think you you have to have some forcing function to get you out of it, right? Yeah. And in some cases, it's uh, you have to overcome the uncertainty and the fear of doing that. You know, I really uh, uh, subscribe to Steve Blank's um, observations about entrepreneurs. Um, Steve is one of the co-founders of the whole lean startup movement, obviously, right? Um, and he kind of notes that most entrepreneurs move somewhere else to do their thing. And the actual fact of moving somewhere else takes on risk and shows that you can actually navigate uncertainties in different places, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think uh, you take on a forcing function of either moving somewhere else or taking on a totally different attitude, and you have to find that gumption somewhere. And whether it's a family member that's an inspiration or a professor that's an inspiration to give you that gumption to get go do something radically different and take on a really different part of risk, that's the that's the the uh, the secret sauce there, and it's accidental. And and what what I found with serial entrepreneurs is after about the third time, they learn how to love the process and love the uncertainty, mm. right? Uh, and then they can then they do really amazing things. Um, and something I found fascinating that we don't talk about enough is almost all really profoundly successful entrepreneurs are you know were dismal failures the first three four times around. And they just didn't stop. And, and one of the concepts of just not stopping is, is always will lead to success. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned forcing functions because, you know, when I look back at one of the threads that I feel like I see across so many people on this show is it's some form of adversity that becomes their forcing function. Like something doesn't go right in their life. And that one thing becomes the catalyst for, you know, an amazing amount of the things that they do later on. Yeah. I mean, they've done studies at Google that show the most successful employees are ones that have a, had a failure, a, a traumatic failure or mitigating experience, and then they figured out how to get out of it. And, and then you, you learn to not be scared of that type of thing. Uh, I find that um, as I've gotten older, I find that um, I actually look forward to those. So when I was at Yahoo and it was started becoming clear that that the Microsoft thing was going to kill my unit and it was going to mean me kind of getting out of there, 
I was actually started looking forward to it. I was like, bring it on. Like, because <laughs> this means something, uh, uh, a, a disjointed uh, change. And I, I know what that means from the past. This capacity to push boundaries, which uh, you have talked about, uh, have you found that it's expanded over the course of your life? And uh, the other question is, how in small ways can we expand our own capacity to push boundaries? So there's lots of ways. I, I th- there's kind of two ways of dealing, uh, expanding boundaries. One is external factor and external stimuli. Uh, drugs would be an obvious example, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but it's a temp- that's a temporary thing. A more sustained uh, approach would be to do internal transformation, meditation, martial arts, uh, NLP-type programs, uh, biofeedback increasingly. And we're starting to develop very interesting technologies to transform the inner self. And so a combination of those two gives you that uh, possibility in, in navigating that. Um, I, I think what the key thing is, you have to love the process of the transformation. You have to kind of get used to the cycle, the cyclical aspect of, uh, you know, I've, I've, one of the things I, I became known for at Singularity, aside from uh, kind of roaming around doing my hand-waving moderation stuff, was that every, for every class, I run a late night session on metaphysics and the meaning of life, um, uh, uh, like alcohol mandatory, right? But, because what we found <laughs> is when, when you take a course there and you learn about the future of AI, robotics, biotech, neuroscience, uh, et cetera, you, it really brings up the big questions of what does it mean to be human uh-huh. and, and, and what is the purpose of life uh, going forward? And so we, we've kind of developed a session where we do this because you need to process that before you can then think about what do you want to do with it. Uh, let's start that inquiry. And, and so uh, I've now done about probably 30 of those sessions uh, uh, um, late night with our, our summer students every summer and then our executive programs quite often. And so that is a ton of fun at one level, but it really, one of the insights I've had from that is everything, really uh, life at its core level is really just a process. And it's a process of taking the unknown and turning it into the known, right? You take potential energy, you turn it into kinetic energy. You take an idea and you make it real. Uh, And that's essentially the fundamental archetypal process in life. And then if you ripple outward from that, uh, you can see that manifesting everywhere in terms of uh, um, uh, organic growth of a tree or a business building or somebody going through school. You kind of take classes and then you consolidate at the end of the year and you take the exam and you go to the next level. And you just cycle like that. And the key insight is that cycle never ends. Mm. Uh, it just It's fascinating to me as a physicist that uh, no matter how big you get in the universe or how small you want to go, you have infinity in both directions. That's really, really interesting because, you know, I, I think that uh, for so many of us, we have this idea in our head of this moment of arrival, this moment that we have made it and that, that everything will be finished. Right. And I realized how untrue that is. Every time I have uh, one of what I, I, I thought was those moments, I realized, you know, that there's this uh, great line uh, in a conversation that the off-camera podcast host Sam Jones was having with the actor Ed Helms. And he asked him, he said, you know, when you look at your life and you realize you've reached a degree of success where you're immediately recognizable on the street, what do you have to say about that? And he said, well, life is a series of false horizons. Ha. And that stuck with me so much because I feel like every one of these moments, you know, the things that we're talking about are really false horizons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and the question then is, if you can 
uh, look at the overall pattern at an archetypal level and then learn to navigate those cycles and learn where you are in a particular cycle, it gives you kind of instant wisdom mm. and a perspective that, okay, this is ready to end and now I'm to the next level, right? And so kind of I did Singularity for five years and then the last two years I've been focused on the book. That will be another four or five years. Uh, and I'm actually now starting to plan the next five years around that. And so... Uh, I've started to learn how to systematize it in a way. Okay, I want to come back to that, but I, I have a couple of questions uh, around the technologies that are, are being worked on to transform your inner self. I mean, you know, one, what are they? What are things that people can do immediately? Because that's probably a question that's on many listeners' minds. And then, you know, the bigger question, you know, you mentioned talking about sort of the meaning of life. I mean, I, I had a guy who was uh, the transhumanist candidate for president here, and it was really fascinating to talk to him about what you know, the idea of like extending our lifespans really means for humanity. Uh, right. But, you know, the capacity to the fact that we're building technologies to make these kinds of internal transformations, um, you know, two questions, you know, one, what are they? And then how can people, you know, apply them? And then two, what are the implications of this for the future of humanity? Which I realize are three massive questions. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Let me get a couple of gin and tonics down me. and then we'll, we'll start. <laughs> um, So uh, the first one is what are the tools for internal transformation, right? We've, we've, had, we've had tools for this in the past. Uh, I mentioned martial arts, meditation, um, uh, prayer structures. Um, we've evolved those types of mechanisms, but they're very slow because they take like lifetimes of meditating. Uh, you can study a koan for like three years and then you have the breakthrough moment of it, etc. Uh, what we found over the last couple of hundred years, starting with psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, was that there were certain shortcuts to that. In the 60s, we've developed uh, NLP, or neuro-linguistic neuro programming, which is kind of the Tony Robbins style of things, or landmark education, mm -hmm. and you can take courses in this. Um, and I found that most very accomplished leaders that I've met have gone through that process at one time or the other. Uh, and so they, they emotionally... Here, let me think. Let me give you my analogy for a human being. You have your body, which is your hardware, and then you have the external world, right? And er, at an early age, you develop the software operating system to interact between the hardware and the external world. And that operating system is formed in the first seven years. And this is why the Jesuits say, Give me the child, and to the age of seven, I give you the man, right? And so that early education inputs did you get bullied? How did you respond? How do you navigate? playground dynamics, uh, how do you deal with parental stress or family trauma or whatever, you kind of form this operating system. Then we become adults and we start running applications on it, career, love life, sports, money, finance, uh, and the applications start crashing. And we blame the application. We never go back to rewrite the operating system. Uh, and so in, an, in kind of an, in a newer world that we live in today, which is infinitely more complex, global uh, information-based, uh, we actually need to rewrite our basic operating systems. And so uh, our old tools for that uh, worked when you had a lifetime to kind of think about it, but the world is moving too quickly now for somebody to take 10 years to meditate and get to some level of transformation. And then it's hard to communicate that to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, we're starting to see newer tools. So the newer tools are things like neuro-linguistic programming, biofeedback techniques, binaural beats, um, increasingly neuroscience, the headsets will give you ways of, uh, I'm, a, I'm a small uh, partner and a, uh, and a kind of a friend of Will uh, um, uh, uh, Henschel, who was a guitarist, for, he played guitar for the Eurythmics, and he has a company called Focus at Will, 
where literally you mm -hmm. plug in your headset and your brain goes into a focused state yep, if you're trying to write software or study or whatever, right? And so I've written my whole book listening to that music. Um, yeah. So when, you, uh, when we have these newer tool sets and technologies that instantly put you into that zone or into the state that you want to be in to accomplish something, really fascinating. Stephen Kotler, who uh -huh. if you've not had on your show... Yep, you I've show, had him. Uh, right, so Stephen's a very good friend, and the rise of Superman and his as thinking on flow states and hacking flow states is really, really profound and important work. Um, I think maybe some of the most important work being done today is some of the thinking that he's doing around this. And so um, navigating that starts because, and what I've been thinking about is what is the flow state of an organization or an institution as opposed to the individual? Uh, because th that's where all of our structures fall into place. And if we don't figure out how to update and transform our organizations and institutions for a newer world, we have an increasing schism in, in the world where technology is taking us in one place and our ability to keep pace is falling rapidly behind. Hmm. And so we really need to develop those tool sets um, and technologies more aggressively around this and embrace them. Hmm. So... I mean, what are the implications of all this for uh, the meaning of life, the future of humanity, and what we are all capable of? So uh, what we're all capable of, you know, the, the pat answer there is we're capable of anything. Type of, mm -hmm. you know. um, in terms of what that means for the future of life, you, you get into a dis difficult problem there, which is a definition problem, right? And uh, the hard part of a lot of this stuff is you, you – uh, Ray Kurzweil puts it really well. He says – Language is a really thin pipe to discuss concepts as deep and rich as consciousness or life, etc. Because we don't have a clear definition for this, right? Uh, you talk about transhumanism. Well, what are you transing? What, what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. the, the minute you get a vaccination as a child, you're technically a cyborg. And so wow. we've been, you know, so I, I remember when Singularity first launched, I got referenced in a news story saying, oh, Sully Mismail, the noted transhumanist, is heading up the organization. And I had to look up the term. I didn't know what a transhumanist was. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what the hell? I've just been labeled something, and I don't even know what that means. Um, I had a bunch of friends in Silicon Valley that said, oh, we didn't know you were a singularitarian. And I had to look that up because I didn't know what the hell that was. Right? Uh, and so um, uh, as, we, as we research these terms, we, we have a big problem around definition and also a test for it. So... If you take the concept of consciousness, we don't have a clear definition. Even a subset of consciousness would be self-awareness, right? Mm. Um, uh, which we have some understanding of. Um, one of our faculty, Dan Berry, who's looked at a lot of animals in labs and so on, thinks that about at the level of a frog, a frog kind of knows that it's a frog. And above that, animals have more and more self-awareness. A mosquito doesn't, in his opinion, a mosquito doesn't know it's a mosquito. Right? But a frog kind of just about, level of a frog kind of just about knows, yeah, I'm a frog. Um, uh, and so that's kind of a dividing line that we've kind of been referencing around that. But the problem with self-awareness is we don't have a test or a definition for it. So I look at somebody, I look at you and I go, yeah, you look like you're self-aware, so I attribute that characteristic to you. If a robot looked like it was self-aware, we would attribute that same characteristic to it. Now, I feel like I'm self-aware, but my wife disagrees. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you see the dis difficulty there in even having the discussion, right? So yeah. a lot of the, the, the reason for having alcohol in these late-night discussions is to get away from the literal meaning of these things and get to the conceptual side 
and loosen up the brain cells to, to kind of discuss this stuff. So I end up finding myself trapped in a lot of these discussions, just kind of fighting over the words. And what we try and do is kind of move past that and say, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? And the core, to cut to the chase of it, the, the core purpose that we've kind of evolved over many, many of these sessions is that the purpose of life is to grow. Hmm. That's it. That's, it. That's the purpose of life. Um, now, why are we growing is a rat hole question. You, you end up in a deep philosophical <laughs> inquiry and you can't get out of it. Um, uh, but it, turns, it seems that all life forms and all institutions, uh, organic and inorganic, uh, are basically just trying to do that. A business is constantly trying to grow. You're, 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 you're growing yourself, you're growing your family, you're growing your species, you're evolving, and so on. And so uh, that's kind of the, the core purpose. And I think what we, where we have today is a really fascinating time where our ability to grow is moving very, very quickly and far exceeding our ability to consolidate and uh, stabilize. Mm -hmm. And so that's the big challenge we have as uh, humanity, I think, today. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
You know, it's interesting. Uh, by the time people are listening, we'll have had uh, Cal Newport here who has been, you know, working on it. He just finished a book called Deep Work, and he talks a lot about just the sheer volume of stuff that is coming at us and how it's actually reducing our capacity for depth when it comes to our work. And because of that, the ability to go deep into problems to work on difficult things is going to be more and more valued as, as we, you know, move forward in the future. Hmm. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. I think what will happen is people will pick a very particular subject and really, really drill into it. What's magical today is there's so much power you can bring with all of the technologies that are available uh, to various problems, mm-hmm. right? Like you look at corruption or you look at uh, one of the things that we're fascinated by and get excited by at Singularity is that we have today advancing technologies moving very, very fast that can actually be applied to cutting-edge global problems. And we've actually never been able to do that as as a race before. So, uh, like, I want to get to that, but I want to ask you a a few questions about the time at Yahoo. Uh, You you mentioned, you know, you're running an incubator basically exposed to, you know, thousands of ideas every day, you know, thousands of different people. Um, I'm curious, uh, during that period, what did you learn about ideas? What did you learn about people? And um, how have you applied that in your life uh, and your work going forward from there? Um, maybe the there's some fairly obvious ones, which is that there's a million ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we're not we're not short of ideas. There's a there's, there's, we're overflowing with ideas. The difficulty is how do you execute and and reorient your organization towards a big new idea Um, because we build an organization and it's built around a particular idea when a totally different and new idea comes along the organization is not set up for it right and um the this is the difficulty structural difficulty that we saw at, at yahoo which most big companies are facing today is if you try and do something disruptive the immune system the organization will come and attack you because all our org structures are built to actually withstand change and withstand risk. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that that's now the higher-order driver. Uh, and so navigating that, I think, is the biggest management challenge that exists in the world today. Uh, and something we've noticed and I've written about in the book is that all of our MBA programs are designed to teach you how to build these old-style 20th century organizations, not the new-style uh 21st century no mba school teaches you today how to build uber yeah <laughs> uh, uh uh no management consulting firm can can advise you on on some on this stuff either and so we actually need a uh, as i've talked to i've been interacting over the last few months with the ceos of like unilever and caterpillar and like a bunch of fortune 100 companies um they're they're all seeing that their organizations aren't set up to deal with this new world and they need to radically change them. And what I found at Yahoo, uh, I, my analysis there is really simple. Ten years ago, Terry Semmel, uh, who was the CEO back in the day, accidentally, and I say that word very carefully, put in a matrix structure, classic big company, you know, products down the verticals and all the functional layers along the horizontals. And that structure is great for command and control, but it's terrible for speed. Because every time you try and do something, you have to get a clearance from legal and, and HR and privacy and branding, etc. And the structure disincentivizes risk-taking. The legal guy wants the same terms of service across all 120 properties, right? Yeah. Now, if you're on the consumer internet, the two attributes you'd better have are speed and risk. And the org structure is antithetical to the industry there. 
And in my indictment of senior management, and especially the board, is that they don't see it. They're, they're all, they blame the CEO, they swap that around a bunch of times, they blame the people, that they swap those around a bunch of times. But it's actually the structural organization, and you, you have to go and take the, co- Dell is doing the right thing. Take the company off the public markets and restructure it radically. Mm. Where you can't do that if you're meeting your quarterly Wall Street numbers. Wow. Um, so I have a couple of questions around uh, money and wealth, uh, because it mm. seems like you've been exposed to a significant amount of both. I mean, I know that you've sold a company before. Uh, you know, this is a question I've asked a handful of people, but I, I kind of want to ask it in a different way. Uh, you know, when you get to the point where you reach, you know, this level in your work where, you know, money ceases to be an issue, um, how does your inner world change as a byproduct of that? Uh, and do you find any common patterns in the people that you've seen and worked with when it comes to this? Um, I have. Um, there's something very magical happening in the world today that Peter references in his book Abundance, mm-hmm. uh, The Rise of the Techno-Billionaires, right? Mm-hmm. Where what happens is you achieve self-sufficiency and extreme wealth. Uh, and if you're, if you're an entrepreneur and you made your money as an entrepreneur, the real motivation for any entrepreneur is to solve problems. Um, uh, m- making money is not the path you take if you want to be an entrepreneur. It's a terrible because uh, <laughs> your chances of success are so low. Yeah. You're better off going into investment banking or uh, uh, some medicine or something where you have a particular path that will gain you a lot of wealth if you work hard. Whereas um, in in entrepreneurship, it doesn't matter how how smart you are, how hard you work. If you don't have that kind of lucky break and hit the right product at the right market at the right time, you will not succeed. And your chances of success are one in a hundred. That's why you need so many repeated attempts at it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what happens is when so many entrepreneurs have made it big because of the, the fundamental platform or the internet, they're trying to solve problems. Their mind naturally then gravitates to, okay, what problem can I next solve if I have an unlimited wealth? And Bill Gates, I think, exemplifies this very well, Right. He's taken his capabilities, his analytical mind, his money, and said, let's go solve malaria. Let's go solve um, mosquito nets and God knows what out there in the world. And this is where we get really excited. We're seeing a lot of people move in that direction. And so um, uh, growing up in India, I mean, every time we went to school, the school bus took us through the Dharavi slums, which are the worst slums in the world by some measures. And you see the the incredible polarization of people in extreme, dire, destitute poverty and extreme wealth um, on the other side. Uh, and you see very experientially that, Jesus, I'm like one, that's, that's the other side of the tracks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, there but for, for the grace of God go I type of thing. So that, that kind of has formulated for me the, some of the foundational experiences where you realize that the only real uh, interest then becomes how big of a difference can you make uh, in the world? And I get, we get really excited because we're seeing a lot of people get to that level uh, more quickly. And when we look at the numbers and how uh, we get really excited by the idea that we've reduced extreme poverty around the world pretty drastically globally, uh, Bill Gates' current prediction, I think, is 2030 will wipe out extreme poverty. Wow. And so that's pretty amazing. So one other question uh, around mindset 
Uh, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting to me is to look at the amount of founders who are willing to write articles on Medium these days uh, about, you know, sort of the managing your psychology aspect of all of this, you know, founder depression, dealing with the ups and downs. Uh, and I'm, I'm just really curious, you know, what patterns you've seen with people, uh, you know, that you've worked with, that you've invested in when it comes to this aspect of entrepreneurship. Oh, like a ton of it. You know, the, the mental illness side of, some, of the world is something we just don't talk enough about. And frankly, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be mentally deranged anyway. Right? <laughs> and so uh, uh, you have to be kind of a little psychotic, uh, just on the teetering on the edge of uh, madness, because then you have the really crazy ideas. Um, uh, the question then becomes, how do you pull that back on demand and move back and forth across that line? And real power comes from when you can put yourself totally over the edge and bring yourself back, right? And if you can do that with skill, uh, then you do really, really well uh, because you can step over that line, go be totally crazy and come back and kind of consolidate. The folks that where the, the conditions get out of their scope or their ability to deal with it, and they've taken their de native depression and turned it, and but that native depression may give you a lot of energy to go do something, you know, manically. And you take that and you turn it into manic execution and you do really well with that. If some flaw hits and then you could drop back into the depression, the consequences can be pretty dire. And so um, it's unfortunately a necessary condition, I think, of radical entrepreneurship that you have to be a bit crazy. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have side effects of that. Uh, and this is the, uh, uh, you know, I, I think if you, if you said, let's just take all entrepreneurs and wipe out all, and you could hit a button and say, let's take out all mental illness and depression and anxiety out of all entrepreneurs, right. I think the level of creativity in the world would drop very dramatically. Wow. That's a hypothesis. Um, uh, maybe we can have our cake and eat it too. Um, but I don't know. I don't know about how we deal with that. It's, it's a really sad situation. I've had a couple of, um, you know, Austin Hines recently, one of the smartest people we know, yeah. uh, committed suicide, Aaron Schwartz. Um, uh -huh. um, uh, and there you see, actually, I think the Aaron Schwartz story is maybe the most uh, fascinating one in terms of seeing uh, the, what happens when somebody goes over the edge and, and society can't handle it. Mm -hmm. right? And then they can't come back. It's a really, it's a really tragic outcome. Um, um, well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about Singularity University a bit. Uh, sure. Where I want to actually take this is uh, in the direction of a conversation about education in general. Yes. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. I, I really appreciate you know what you said about MBA programs because I, I wrote a post on Medium titled "Why Business School Teaches You Nothing About Running a Business," and it was about all the six things you know the, the last six years of building you know unmistakable creative and the things I've learned. And I'm like, wow, none of these were ever taught in a class in business school. Um, so I, I'm really interested. You know, you said you were a dean in, in Singularity's University. So I, I one, I want to hear your perspectives on our education system, the challenges that we're having with it, and more importantly, how we're changing it and the role that you guys are playing. Again, I realize we could do an entire podcast episode just about that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, can I swear? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, so, because I, I, I may end up losing uh, control here because I have a pretty, pretty uh, hard thought. So, with Singularity, for the folks that are new to it, we brought together the world's leading experts in very fast-moving technologies, and we teach 80% of our curriculum is focused on the future of accelerating technologies, right? So, 
like uh, robotics, biotech, neuroscience, uh, drones, 3D printing, nanotech, AI, etc. Where is this going? Uh, and, and we then think about the implications for business and society. And our mission statement is to solve global problems using accelerating technologies. So something we've noticed around a couple of interesting aspects re relative to education is uh, we update our curriculum on a real-time basis. It's one of the most unique attributes of our model. Uh, if you look at biotech, we've had like four major breakthroughs just in the last year. And so it's forced us to have a very unique curriculum development methodology. Well, it turns out that we can become an official accredited state-sanctioned EDU because to do that, you have to fix your curriculum and not change it. <laughs> right? And there, there's the kind of clear example of the regulatory structure not keeping pace with the pace of change, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the issue in healthcare and, and all of the difficulties in the world today is that issue. The um, second part of it is that because of the pace of change and the volatility, um, uh, well, if you're doing today a master's degree in one of the areas that we teach, like neuroscience or advanced robotics or biotech, Today, if you by the time you finish your master's degree in one of those subjects, you're out of date. Yeah. And we've just never seen that before. Our ability to teach a subject can't keep pace with the changes in the subject area, right? Now, this poses a big structural problem. Uh, and so you, if you listen to um, um, uh, John Hagel and John Seeley Brown uh, around this, they've written the book, The Power of Pull. Uh, John Seeley Brown often says that, you know, the half-life of a skill used to be about 30 years. Like if you became a master welder, that would last you like 30 years. Um, uh, today, that half-life is down to about five years. Right? And so the big challenge we have with education is our entire education system is geared around churning out people for specific jobs in the job market. Mm -hmm. But we don't know what a job looks like in five years, so what the hell are we teaching them? That's problem one, <laughs> uh, which is fairly basic. The yeah. problem two is, that um, uh, the concept of teaching today and education is very much a push-based system. You get kids into a classroom and you're trying to cram algebra into them. Mostly they're thinking about lunch, right? Uh -huh. uh, our understanding of neural retention, pedagogical techniques, challenge-based learning, customized pathways is profoundly thousands and thousands of times more advanced than what we do today in our schools, and yet we have no ability to change the existing system. The existing schooling and educational systems are too stuck in teachers' unions, textbook publishers, you know, Texas creationists, and God knows what, and you cannot, regulatory structures, and you can't update them. And so what you have to do is literally uh, create new systems at the edges, the Khan Academy being an example, or others, uh, uh, the MOOCs, and so on, so create new systems at the edges, let them gain critical mass, move our resources to those and let the middle implode. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the, I've, I've noticed this, and this is a standard pattern that we recommend in large organizations now as well. You can't take a large company and fix it. You have to create new startups on the edge and let things gravitate to that. Um, and so uh, the education system is fundamentally flawed in a number of ways. I think what we'll do is we'll find that we're tra we'll transform education systems into learning systems. Mm -hmm. And rather than kind of spending 20-odd years becoming educated and then being a productive member of society, you do a shorter education sprint in, you know, what we call the 21st century skills. And then you, uh, uh, learning becomes an ongoing companion along the way. Hmm.
So when it comes to students who come uh, to Singularity University, I mean, what kinds of backgrounds do they come from? I mean, is it people who are there only to solve these like global problems or is somebody like me a qualified candidate to come in and, you know, take classes there and to, to learn all these things? So we do two programs. Every summer we have a 10-week summer program called the Global, um, uh, I think we used to call it the Graduate Studies Program. We've just changed the name of it. But the basic idea is you come in for 10 weeks, you live with us at NASA, for half the summer, we deliver about 300 hours of lectures, labs, workshops on the future of these technologies across all of them. And then the second half of the summer, we turn into an incubator. You form a team focused on solving a big problem space like corruption, poverty, education, healthcare. Uh, and then we basically say, go launch a business or an NGO or a research initiative that would impact a billion people within 10 years. Wow. Okay. And the idea is that we're seeing technologies that can actually scale to a global level in a way that we've never seen. And so uh, uh, one example is drones, right? Today, a drone can carry a 10-kilo package uh, about um, uh, 20 kilometers. Uh, but that is doubling in its capability every nine months because of the underlying technology. So in a year, it's 20 kilos. In another year, it's 40 kilos. In another year, it's 80 kilos. And so... Uh, um, uh, we're teaching them to spot these doubling patterns, layer solutions on top of them in a global problem space. As a solution scale, we solve global problems in a natural accelerated way. Um, so that's the heart of our program. Average age is 30. Uh-huh. Uh, typically, they have an MBA or a master's degree or a PhD in one of the areas that we teach. And we use the kind of the Stanford T idea, which is you have deep expertise in one area and academic rigor in one area. And then we take you across to other areas. Uh, major breakthroughs always happen when you cross disparate subject matters, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to create a cocktail where we bring together leading experts in the world in the fastest moving technologies and point people at the biggest problems and opportunities. And we hope as we swirl that around, something interesting happens. We've now launched kind of probably over 100 startups, each attempting to do those to achieve that goal. So that's our heart of it. And then every uh, couple of months around that, we do a one-week executive program for CEOs, investors, government leaders. Uh, you'd probably be more candidate for that in terms of saying, okay, what's a snapshot view of what technologies may have a major impact? Because if you're running a big business today and you're not aware of what technologies are coming down the pike uh, that might orthogonally wipe you out, you're not doing your job. Right. Right? You end up as Kodak or BlackBerry or Nokia and you get wiped out pretty quickly. And so that's the imperative. We're now dealing, we have a lot of Fortune 500 execs coming through. Uh, we talked to a lot of governments and world leaders about uh, this. Kind of, I just spent a weekend at the Vatican a couple of weekends ago because uh, they're trying to think about what does, how do they position the Catholic Church in the face of these new technologies and how do you scale the Pope in a different way? Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit about singularity. Uh, um, the The basic impetus is we're seeing very fast-moving technologies and we can harness that pace of acceleration in a way that we just never saw before. Maybe the most dramatic one is, I'll give you two examples, okay, that highlight the scale of this disruption. In the healthcare world, Peter has a, an XPRIZE funded by Qualcomm called the Tricorder XPRIZE, um, which is a literally a $10 million prize for the Star Trek Tricorder. Somebody will win $10 million when their handheld device can outperform 10 board-certified doctors in doing a diagnosis, okay? Wow. 300 teams have been competing for this. We're down to the final seven. The winner will be announced in a few months. In a few months, we will have a handheld device that will beat most doctors at doing a diagnosis. 
Now, uh, you ask anybody in the healthcare world, uh, less than 0.1% of this of the people in the healthcare sector have ever even heard of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I speak a lot at healthcare conferences and ask for a show of hands. And the answer, if I speak it to 2,000 people, the answer is less than 10 that are aware of this. So major disruption is coming from outside your field and your domain and mm-hmm. attacking you in a way you've never seen. The second is maybe the most dramatic is solar energy, which is doubling in its price performance every 22 months right now. Wow. And has been for a few decades. And when we run the numbers, uh, we will hit 100% of world energy supply deliverable by solar in about 22 years. Crazy. Right? That's why, so our, uh, like, and, and, and by the way, that 22 years, two years later, it's uh, 200%, two years later, it's 400%, two years later, it's 800% because of the doubling pattern. Yeah. So we're looking at a future of abundant solar that's radically cheap and almost zero, uh, totally will change geopolitics, right? I've been advising the Canadian leadership that, hey, you're thinking the Athabasca oil sands is your goose to lay the golden egg, and they'll never be used. Fracking in the short term, solar in the long term, you're kind of done. And so maybe you need to think about reorienting the economy to deal with that. Hmm. So... Uh- I want to wrap up by talking about this idea of exponential organizations, you know, defining them for people, what they are, how they work. And then I think what I want to do is bring it back down to how we take the concepts of exponential organizations and apply that to our own personal growth, if that makes any sense. Absolutely makes sense. And that's a, that's a great topic. Um, so uh, exponential, uh, short form is EXO, right? Um, what we've found is over the last five, six years, we've noticed a new breed of organization structure where, you know, we've learned how to scale technology pretty well. We can go from one user to a million users pretty seamlessly. But scaling the actual organization has always been painfully incremental and linear, right, as many of your listeners will be painfully aware of. <laughs> In the last five years, we're seeing a new breed of organization that is actually scaling at the same seamless pace that technology can scale. And so the benchmark that we found for this is they're scaling at a minimum 10x performance improvement compared to their competition. Uh-huh. So a Tesla has 10 times less moving parts than a normal car. Airbnb has 10 times more listings per employee than, than any of the other hotels, et cetera, et cetera. We've now found about 100 organizations operating like this. And in um, April, last April, Stephen Levy um, published a Medium post called Secrets of Unicorns, where we mm-hmm. talked about some of the techniques. And there's like 10 ca- characteristics, uh, leveraging community, leveraging algorithms, um, uh, new engagement techniques, uh, um, leveraging staff on demand like Uber, uh, leveraging other people's assets like Airbnb, leveraging autonomy using Lee. Um, there's five external characteristics and five internal characteristics. And what we found is if you implement four out of the 10, you get a 10x performance improvement. And so uh, we have been looking at how do you do this? And one of the m- most common characteristics is what I call an MTP or massive transformative purpose. Mm-hmm. We found that all exponential organizations have this massive purpose. It's like the Google moonshot, where you say, I'm going to radically transform some domain. Google is organize the world's information. You know, uh, singularities go impact a billion people positively, that type of thing. And you create an aspirational tagline, and a gravity well of interest forms, and then people drive the, the organization forward towards that. Um, it's replacing the old kind of standard mission statement. So that's what we define as exponential organizations, uh, this new way of scaling. Uh, you take Airbnb, take uh, Uber. 
Mm-hmm. The mission critical function of Uber is to match driver and passenger, right? And that doesn't happen inside the org. It happens out in the wild. And so by enabling that with technology, you can scale very, very uh, aggressively fast. And we've uh, uh, TED uses its community to scale outside itself with TEDx events. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Airbnb is leveraging extra bedrooms uh, in people and turning them into hotel rooms, etc. And so our old way of building a business was to get an asset or a workforce, put a legal boundary around it, and sell access to scarcity. So selling scarcity has been basically the foundation of business from the beginning of time. What these new exponential organizations are doing, they're finding business models around abundance. If you own a car, it's it's empty 96% of the time. So Uber is tapping into that latent abundance, or Airbnb is tapping into the abundance of extra bedrooms lying around and so we're seeing this new breed of business that's doing that, and, and therefore they can scale very, very effectively. And the big challenge and the big uh, economic advantage they have is they have low marginal cost of supply. And that's maybe the biggest insight that came out of the book is you, took a, you take Airbnb. The marginal cost of adding a hotel room or a room to their inventory is almost zero, right? If you're Hyatt, you have to build a whole hotel. And as we have more and more entrants into this, into these more and more EXOs entering marketplaces with low cost of supply, what does the legacy business do? It's an existential threat. And it's currently my thesis that every one of the global 5,000 now has to transform themselves to react and operate in a totally different way. And so we're doing a lot of advisory work to companies around that today. Amazing. So how does one apply this to an individual? Yeah, so as in the, for the individual, uh, you basically think about, I think Reid Hoffman summarized it pretty well in his book, A Startup of You, or mm-hmm. A Startup of One, or whatever, it's, I can't remember the name exactly. But he basically says, look, you have to manage yourself like a business, right? And so what is your, what is your massive purpose that you want to take on? So I would kind of start with that. What is your community that you can leverage or go create one if you have? Uh, maybe the biggest one is the first one, which is what is the problem that you want to solve in your lifetime? Um, Peter wants to privatize space, mm-hmm. right? So that's his. Um, uh, Elon is trying to do space, energy, and cars because one just isn't enough. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and we have a really, we live in a magical time where disruptive innovation only used to be the, the domain of governments or large corporations. And now anybody can come into an industry with a beginner's mind, mm-hmm. leverage new technologies, and totally disrupt the status quo, right? And so, uh, what is the basic problem you want to solve? And then when you apply that to your inner growth, what are the structures that you will need uh, internally to get you there? And I think it's a combination of emotional intelligence and maturity and, and transformation on your inner side. Uh, and, then, and then you, you uh, take on new tools as you need them to go into this new place. One of the secret things that we do at Singularity is when we challenge a successful entrepreneur and we say, go impact a billion people, you infect them, right? Because once they're exposed to thinking at that global scale, they can't go back to building a better mobile ad network. Mm -hmm. And so they're stuck thinking at at scale from then on because it's too exciting. And so when you take on kind of a really big problem, you kind of, you train your psyche and your mind to operate thinking in that way. And so then all of your insides and all of your mental capacities and all of your emotional structures line up around that and you start operating that on that way. Uh, I can't remember whether it was Churchill or Gandhi or whoever the hell it said it was. You measure a man by the problems that he's tackling. 
Mm. And so I think that would sort of become a defining measure. So, you know, if I'm worried about uh, curing poverty or solving uh, cancer, um, uh, I can't be thinking about the fact that my dry cleaner really screwed up my shirts. Mm. Uh, all my time is spent thinking about the bigger problems. And I think overall it starts guiding us. I think this is where some of these new techniques like NLP and some of these things do a really great job because they give you a target for the future mm-hmm. where a standard kind of psychotherapy and older techniques keep you trapped in the past as a conversation always about what happened in the past. Whereas the new mechanism is, okay, where do you want to go? What problem do you want to solve? And then the, the excitement of that journey will kind of pick you up and pull the, all of you along in that way. So I have two final questions. Um, yeah. One is around this capacity to do things that impact a billion people. And, uh, I, you know, the reason I bring this up is I had a, a very good friend and a mentor who played an instrumental role in in building Unmistakable Creative and, and everything that I've done. Mm. And one of the things that he said is in our sort of new agey self-help driven world, we have gotten to this point where we're confusing probability with possibility and talent and intelligence aren't nearly on the table when it comes to the types of people who solve these types of problems. He said, you cannot discount the fact that there are certain people that are just born that way, uh, like an Elon Musk, like a Mark Zuckerberg. And given what you've just told me, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are around that. And is this capacity to go do something that impacts a billion people, something that is inside each and every one of us or only certain people? Oh, you know, this is the nature versus nurture question, right? Are entrepreneurs born and can they be trained? Um, I think increasingly they can be trained. Uh, for example, I am not a natural born entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a little crazy, but all my training, <laughs> guidance, education, family experiences said, go, you know, be a good middle class engineering capable guy and go do this. Um, uh, because in India that was considered profound success, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh, so I have no training in that. It was accidental. And then you, it's a muscle that you learn how to exercise over time. Uh, I've done seven startups, and I feel like I'm only now getting to the point where I've got that expertise a little bit more under my belt. The the um, uh, What we found is if you can put somebody in that mold and give them that opportunity to exercise that muscle, then something magical happens over time. And as I said before, when you can infect them and say, listen, you can actually change the world. And, you know, 20 years ago, this was a difficult decision. Path. There were no reference points, but today you can point to a Reed Hoffman and a Larry Page and an Elon Musk and a and a Larry uh, Mark Zuckerberg and and any number of people. Increasingly, in new countries, right in global places, that are have made a magical difference in the world, and say, "There's your guiding post. There's your guidepost and guiding light. You can anybody can go do this now. You need a laptop and an idea, and you can go create Facebook, right? Yeah. And and we find that that same approach can now be applied to clean water and to poverty and to healthcare. Uh, 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 really, really magical things are happening across the world around all of this. So we think this can definitely be trained. You still have to overcome yourself. It requires a transformation, uh, envi- transformative environment. You need a team of like-minded, crazy people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and frankly, that's actually the real output of Singularity is creating a network, a global network of now 3,000 graduates in 85 countries, all thinking in this way. Uh, And so if I go back to my earlier points, we don't have any um, uh, faith in the existing leadership of the world. 
to make the transition that we need to, we actually need to create new leaders that think in a completely different way. And so we're trying to do that at one level. And by launching projects that demonstrate that this future is happening, it makes it undeniable that we're heading in that direction. Wow. And so that's the, that's the uh, setup and platform that we hope to build. Awesome. Well, I have one last question for you, which is how we wrap up uh, all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, it is applied spirit. So when I look at somebody that's out there doing really crazy things, they've taken some deep part of their soul or their spirit and they've put it out there. Uh, and they've said, here it is, and I'm going after that. Uh, and so you take something, some passion, some interest, some skill from very, very deep down inside you, you craft it, you work on it, uh, and then you put it out there uh, and you say to the world, this is it. And you have to kind of let go of fear uh, and you just say, this is where I'm heading. And I think that when I look at hyper successful people or in, in your words, you know, unmistakably creative people, they're all doing something like that. Well, uh, this has been really, really fascinating and uh, eye-opening, as I, as I expected it would be. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners at Unmistakable Creative. Great to be here. Thanks for the great questions. Ah, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.